invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 15 this morning. And when I put together the schedule for uh, sermons and what passages we're going to study, um, I don't make an in-depth study of the passage at that time. I, I look over and I read through it and determine if it's going to be appropriate for the context and, and, and kind of our themes. And so I just put Psalm 15 on because it was really cool. I mean, it lays out steps for us. I mean, you want the five steps, here it is for us. And then... Two weeks before, I, I begin to dig in, and, and there's way more here than what I thought. So all that to say is, this is going to be one long sermon that will go over the course of probably two, three, maybe four weeks. So I'm going to end in the middle of something, and then next time we're together, I'll go back and rehash a little bit, and then we'll move on, and then I'll go back and rehash, and then we'll move on. Uh, it's just the way that Psalm 15 is structured. Um, instead of doing this and this and this and this, we're just going to have one long sermon that will continue on. It, it won't be long today, but it's going to go on for weeks, okay? It's going to go on for weeks. Um, so all that says for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be examining Psalm 15 because it is concrete, it is plain, it is simple. How then should I live it's right here. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I'll read Psalm 15. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, bring your Holy Spirit upon us today and open our eyes that our hearts might be enlivened to your word. Not that we just read it and see it with our eyes, but that it penetrates us and determines and forms and shapes us so that we might live for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 15, it is a psalm of David. Much like Psalm 24, it asks the question, O Lord, who may abide in thy tent, who may dwell on thy holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Basically, we're going to be looking at the ethics of the believer for the next few weeks. Now, Webster defines ethics as the rules of conduct recognized in respect to a particular class of human actions or a particular group or culture, such as medical ethics. Okay, medical ethics. Well, that's, uh, that's a good definition. Uh, I didn't really understand it, but uh, it was a good definition. So I went and looked at other places. Now, there is a study center in California called the Marcula Center for Applied Ethics. Applied Ethics. We like applied ethics because I don't want to just hold them in my heart. I want to live them out. And they deal especially with business ethics. And I remember my friend um, uh, who was a, got his uh, MBA at Harvard and uh, he had a class in ethics and they thought ethics were important, but they really couldn't define them in the business world when he was there. Um, hmm. 
Let's see what uh, the Marcula Center says. Well, they asked a question of those who, who come and attend their, their seminars. What does ethics mean to you? And these were some of the responses that they received. Ethics has to do with what my feelings tell me is right or wrong. Ethics has to do with my religious beliefs. Being ethical is doing what the law requires. Ethics consists of the standards of behavior our society accepts. Well, let's examine those just for a moment. Like the first respondent here, many people tend to equate ethics with their feelings. How do I feel about a certain thing? But being, ethically is, being ethical is clearly not a matter of how you feel or how you feel about such and such a thing. A person following his feelings might recoil from doing what is right because it might cost them something. So they don't want to do that. In fact, feelings frequently deviate from what is ethical. Nor should one identify ethics only with religion. Now, most religions, of course, have ethics and have a high ethical standard. Uh, yet, if ethics were confined to religion, then we could uh, excuse any atheist or agnostic or anybody else like that uh, for not having any ethics. Well, ethics go beyond religion. It applies as much to behavior of an atheist as it does to any of us sitting here in the pew. Now, religion can set a high ethical standard and can provide a lot of motivation for our behaviors, but they cannot be confined to religion. Look at the disparity between a conservative evangelical Christian's ethics and a conservative Muslim's ethics. They are at odds. So being ethical is also not the same as following the law. Law often incorporates ethical standards, um, which most of us subscribe to. But laws like feelings can deviate from what is ethical. Look at our own in our country. Some of the laws from 100 or 200 or 300 years ago, they weren't all that ethical as we would understand them today. Well, being ethical is not the same as doing whatever society agrees is ethical or normal. In any society, most people accept standards that are ethical. I mean, we don't... We don't do certain things because they're wrong, right? Well, standards of behavior in societies can deviate from one society to another. So if I go to another society, what was not ethical here might be ethical over there. All we have to do is look at certain times in Nazi Germany. And what was ethical as a nation was certainly not ethical behavior. Well, what then are ethics? And I'm still dealing with what the Marcula's, uh, um, uh, Marcula's, uh, what they, the, the Center for Applied Ethics, what they have discovered. First, ethics refers to a well-founded standard of right and wrong that prescribe what humans ought to do. This is how we ought to live, usually in terms of rights, obligations. Benefits to society, fairness, specific virtues. Now, those standards impose certain reasonable obligations upon us to refrain from such things. Think of what is ethical and what we should refrain from. Things like rape and stealing and murder and assault and slander and fraud. I know that sounds a lot like the Ten Commandments, but we'll get to that in a moment. Ethical standards also includes those things which we are enjoined to do, which we are called to do, right? 
We have a right to life. We have a, a right to freedom. Uh, we have a freedom from injury, a right to certain liberties and privacy. These are standards uh, that are set in ethics because they have a long history behind them of reason and understanding. Secondly, ethics refers to the study and development of my own ethical standards. Okay? As mentioned above, feelings, laws, social norms can deviate. What does Randy hold that is ethical for him? So it's necessary for me to constantly examine my life and to ensure that my ethics stand on something that is well-founded. Now, you, you, we're in church, you know where I'm going, where we get our ethics from, from the Word of God. Christian ethics, the Marcula Center does not define Christian ethics. Scripture defines Christian ethics, and we might define it this way. The law of God put into practice through a changed heart. We who have received the grace of Jesus Christ have a changed heart. So how am I going to live out what God says is right and wrong in this world? And it really doesn't matter what the rest of the world says if God says this is what is right and this is what is wrong and this is what I should do, this is what I shouldn't do, these are the things I should promote, these are the things I should not promote. I need to do those because my heart has been changed and touched by God's grace and this is what he says. Now remember, the law of God is there to inform us about what our sin is. It's there to set the boundaries. Don't go beyond this. This is right. This is wrong. You step on this side of the line, you're in error. You step on this side of the line, you're doing good. Okay. The Gospels are replete, replete with instances of Jesus saying, what? You have heard it said, but I say to you, okay, oh. Now, this is the living out of the law, the ethics. Remember, I've heard it say, do not, you've heard it say, do not commit murder, but I tell you what, if you harbor anger in your heart against somebody, you are in deep trouble. Well, is that an ethic? Yes, because Christ says this is how you apply these things. You don't harbor anger against your brother. If you harbor anger against your brother, you go to them and you speak to them and you seek reconciliation. This is how we are to live. It's both our actions and our attitudes are shaped by God's word. And they're shaped by God's word because God's word doesn't change. God does not go like this and stick his holy finger in the air and go, which way are the ethics going to this generation? I think I'll change. Or he doesn't focus group what is popular in society. He says, this is right and this is wrong and this is how my people live. And there you go. And that's what we are to do. So Psalm 15, here we finally get, that's all, that's all introduction. This is, finally we get to Psalm 15, and Psalm 15 asks the right question. It's a question that gets to the heart of our identity. It gets to the heart of every human being. Whether we want to admit it or not, this cuts right to us. Who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Who can go to the Lord's presence? Who can enter into the direct presence of the Lord? That's the question. Who is worthy? And you couldn't really ask a better question than that. And this psalm, my guess is this psalm probably formed the basis of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. If you compare the two, there are a lot of similarities there. So Charles Spurgeon said, the first verse asks the question, 
And the rest of the psalm answers the question. We read God's requirements in verses 2 through 5. And these requirements answer this question. Now, let's flip over a couple pages to Psalm 24. We read it as a group together, but we can highlight a certain uh, a couple bits here. There are other, this is not a comprehensive list of what we're going to look at here in Psalm 15. There are other lists that, that help us understand what the Christian ethic is, how Christians are supposed to live. And it's not just do's and don'ts, remember? It is also, Jesus says, it's the attitude of your heart. If your heart is wrong, you're in trouble. But if your heart has been changed, this is how then you are to live. So Psalm 24, look at uh, verse 3. It's the same question. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Now we know theologically you cannot be in the presence of the Lord. You cannot look upon the face of the Lord. No man can look upon my face and live. But we can come into the presence of the Lord through the finished work of Christ, through the Holy Spirit. You go to your knees and you go to prayer and where do you go? You go right to the throne of grace. So who can go there? Verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, who has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face, even Jacob. Now, later we read in Isaiah chapter 33 something very similar to this, and I'll just read it for us. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell in the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, shuts his eyes from the things of evil. He who dwells on high, his place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given to him, his water will be sure. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. This is, this, who can stand in the presence of the Lord? Isaiah gives us this picture of it. All right, back to Psalm 15. Psalm 15 often reminds us, as I said, of the Ten Commandments. Because in this psalm, there are both both positive and negative things. You are to do these things. You are to not do these things. And that's ethical behavior. There are things I do which are evidence of my ethics that that come from Scripture, and there are things that I don't do. This does not reduce God's Word to what? The do's and the don'ts. This is not legalism. Do not, not think we're talking about legalism here. What we are really dealing with is a heart that has been changed by the grace of Christ Francis Schaeffer said what? How then shall I live? How then shall we live if we have been saved by grace? This helps us understand what it is that we are called to do. Now, let's look at the context of the psalm. This is why this is one big long sermon. Okay, There's so much here. Look at the context of the psalm. Go back one page to Psalm 14. Now, you think, do I know Psalm 14? You know at least one verse in Psalm 14 for sure. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's what the fool says. Now, when we read down through Psalm 14, 
says, the fool in his heart says there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. That paints a pretty bad picture of the people. The fool says there's no God. So if I believe that there's no God, what happens to me? Well, I become corrupt. My deeds are abominable. I don't do any good. And the Lord says, it says, the Lord looks down from heaven to see if there's anybody, anybody. And he says what? They've all turned aside. They've all become corrupt. There's no one that does good, not even one. And then we get over to Psalm 15. Now, Psalm 14 is the group of people that say there's no God. Psalm 15 is an example of the person who says there is a God and he wants to know how he should live in light of that fact. How should my life be structured? How should my heart be structured in light of the fact of God's grace? This is not a road map to salvation in Psalm 15. This is not uh, David laying out this is how you are saved if you do this and don't do that. No. We're talking about somebody who's already been changed. How then do I live? Because I want to live in light of the grace that has been given to me. I want to live in light of my understanding of a holy and righteous God that he cares enough to extend this grace to me. He cares enough to change my life. How then shall we live? Who may abide in the tent? Who can dwell on the holy hill there are those who can but not everybody can okay now don't mistake this this is not if everybody would do these things we would all go to heaven that is not the issue here there are some who will not be there but what does the life look like of those who will who will enjoy the fellowship of our heavenly father who is it that has the character of that God approves of? What is the mark of that character? Who is the man who has fellowship with God, who in a sense enjoys the providential protection of our Heavenly Father? Who is the man who has God's hand upon him as opposed to the fool who doesn't even believe in God? Fifteen Psalm 15 defines the kind of righteousness that God requires of those who will walk with him. Now, my friends, this is, some of these will not be pleasant for us because they're going to call us to do things that, that I don't want to do, frankly. You know, when I started to get into the, the, the weeds on this psalm, I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't preach on this because I'm not living up to this, okay? I don't even like some of this stuff. But this is what it says that we are to do. And not only to do, but, but I guess the tougher question and the tougher issue for us will be, this is what it says my heart should be like. Now you all can see me and then go, oh, Randy behaves this way and Randy's a good guy. But you don't know Randy's heart. And, and it is dependent upon each of us to get our hearts right. Because from the heart 
things will flow. And if our hearts are wrong, sooner or later, what's going to come out of our mouth or what's going to come out of our hands? Sinfulness. Okay. Oh, you can push it down and you can push it away, but sooner or later, it's going to spring out, you know? It's the, the joke about the guy who was working on a construction site and there was a church group and, and there's this guy and he's following a preacher around all day and, and finally the minister turns around and goes, what are you doing? You're not working, you're just following me around. And he says, I'm waiting to see what happens when you hit your thumb with a hammer. Yeah? What do you say, what does the preacher say when he hits his thumb with a hammer? I say, you don't want to hear it, okay? <laughs> you don't want to hear it. Because there's still stuff within us. Okay, so this list is not how we become right with God, but a list of behaviors of those who are right with God. So, Lord, who can abide in your tent? Not everybody's going to do it. Who is it? Not everybody is entitled to abide in the tent of the Lord, but those whom he calls. Now, we understand from a New Testament perspective that the grace of Christ must be applied to the person's life. Then they can become righteous because we don't have any righteousness of our own. It is the righteousness of Christ, which is what? From the Sunday school class, how is grace given to us? Uh, I know you're going, Sunday school class, what word is that? Imputed, okay, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It is given to us in a one-time action by our Heavenly Father. Bam! We don't have any righteousness. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. It's not dribbled into our lives as we need it. His strength is given to us as we need it. But that grace changes us in an instant. Boom. It is by grace that we are saved by, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus chapter 3 says it is only because Christ himself has lived perfectly. Will we live this list perfectly? The answer is easy. No, we will not. But yet we are called to live it nonetheless. It is only because Christ died to take away our sins that the barrier of sin can be removed and we can have access to God. So, are you ready to look at how we are supposed to live? We're only going to get half of one today. Half of one. Look at verse 2. This is the character of the righteous man. The character of the one who may ascend to the hill of the Lord. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness. Or your translation may say, who does righteousness. So we have both a negative thing, you have to walk blamelessly without doing something, and you have something which is positive. You have to do the works of righteousness which the Lord lays before us. Now the word here, blameless, uh, is a word that means whole or well-rounded, so that the individual strives as best they can to keep all the commandments and all the laws that the Lord has for him and does not vacillate. I really don't like that one, so I'm going to come back to that. Okay, That thing about stealing, oh, maybe later. Maybe later, because I really wanted what he had. So I'll think about that at some other time. But in, in general, what you see on Sunday morning is what you see throughout the week in this person's life. They do not vacillate. Sunday morning, they come to worship the Lord. You see certain things in their lives. You see certain actions. You hear certain words out of their mouth. What do you see on Saturday night from them? You see the same thing. Because this is the man who is, walks with integrity. 
who does what is right. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 25. So we're talking about a man who not only has, or a woman, not only has good character, but who does what is right. Okay? Because I can talk about what is right, but talking about what is right is not doing what is right. Be doers of the word. This man actively engages in doing what is righteous. Matthew chapter 25, let's look at, uh, we'll start in verse 34 and go from there. This is, uh, this is these great words of Jesus. He's just put the, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And, and verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick. And you visited me, I was in prison, and you came to me. This, all these things are doing, okay? It's not just, I thought about doing these, but I got sidetracked. No, you did these things. 37, then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Okay. These are action words. You did these things. Why? Because of the grace that was given to you in Jesus Christ. You live them out in these ways. The righteous man does righteous works. James talks about the same thing in chapter 2. We read it in the Sunday school class earlier today. Understand, you are saved by faith, but not by a faith that is alone. It is the workings out, the living out of that faith. It doesn't save you, but it is a necessary consequence. If you've been saved, the necessary consequence of your faith will be righteous living. It will be demonstrated in your character. All right, back to Psalm 15. The second half of verse 2. Verse 2 says, He who walks with integrity... And works righteousness, or who does righteous works, and speaks truth in his heart. This is what I was talking about earlier. This, you know, there, there might be, and I'll just pick on me. What do you know about Randy? Oh, good guy. Well, how do you know? Well, he says these great things, and, and you know, he treats people nice, and, and, you know, doesn't kick his dog, and all that types of things. But what do you know about Randy's heart? What do you know about what is inside? And, and this is what the Lord says. He has to speak truth in his heart. David is emphasizing the internal dynamics of the righteous heart. Because if this is wrong, sooner or later it's going to come out. Sooner or later it's going to come out. Everything that follows in the rest of the psalm is really dependent upon this little section here. He speaks truth in his heart. It's a man who has a life of integrity and consistency and applies the word of God in all aspects of his life. There isn't a black and white difference. He doesn't turn it off and then turn it back on. Uh-oh, church people are going to be here. I better turn on the happiness. 
I better turn on the righteousness. No, it's righteous all the time. It's righteous all the time. In fact, the Hebrew here is very particular. It expresses the habitual nature, the ongoing aspect of the man's life. He walks in integrity. He keeps on walking in integrity. There is not a time that he doesn't. Now, he might not be as, as, as good as he should, as good as he wants to be, but it is the manner of his life that is demonstrated in these things. And David says here, even in the inner recesses of his heart, this is active. I don't want to make our hearts any viler than they are. They're sinful. And nobody knows your heart but you and the Lord. The same thing as me. We have to work so hard to guard our hearts, to protect our hearts about what we take in. We have to feed them with good things. We have to fill them with good things. Jesus said the words that come out of our mouths are a reflection of what's going on inside of our hearts. The same principle is here. A righteous man is mindful of the fact that the Lord looks upon his heart. Not just what he says. We might fool everybody else around us by saying the right things or doing the right things. But here, in our hearts, the Lord knows. There you are, in your bed, in the dark. The voices of the day are gone. What is the voice that lingers in your heart? What is the thing that keeps playing in your mind? There you are, alone, um, wherever you are. What do you do when you're alone? Is it the same thing you would do in public? What would the history of your computer say to us? Those are hard questions we don't want to ask. But yet that's what the psalmist is calling us to look at. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we dig into this word, it, it is rich, but it is hard. Because I get the real sense, Lord, we're going to have to ask ourselves questions about how is it that we live. And not just on the externals, but how is it, what's the status of our hearts? Yes, we've been recipients of grace. But are there things in the recesses of our hearts that we have to deal with? Heavenly Father, in the next few weeks, bring these to light for us. Because... Because we want to live in a way that, that is pleasing to you. We want to live in righteousness. We want to be able to hold up our hands and say, I've got clean hands. I've got pure hearts. Why? Because of the work of Christ and because I do not pursue the things that he says don't pursue. And I do pursue the things that give him glory and that serve his purposes and serve the things of the kingdom. Come upon us, Lord, because you... You call us to this, and you don't call us and just say, well, go and do it. But you call us and say, I have given you my Holy Spirit that you may achieve these things. I have given you the Holy Spirit who may comfort you when you fall short of these things. I have given you the Holy Spirit to empower you to live the life that I have called you to live. Lord, work on us in the next few weeks so that we might live in a way that is pleasing to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.